Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Proudly presented by worldpodcast.com. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everyone, thanks for joining me on episode 5. I'm Blair Walker. On the Pro Video Podcast, we'll provide insights and knowledge from incredible content creators around the world. Expect to hear tips and stories across all areas, including filming, editing, color grading, motion design, 3D, workflows and more. Plus, the tools and technologies that help us. On this episode, I'm talking with James McLaughlin. James is a 2D lead flame and new artist at The Mill London. We discuss a recent commercial, Pure Imagination, the latest project he worked on for Audi and was directed by G-Monk. James elaborates in detail on a lot of the processes from the selection of music through to bringing a high-profile director's treatment to life. The conversation moves to the workflows The Mill implements for filming, 3D and compositing. Alright, let's go to the interview now with James McLaughlin. Today I'm with Jamie McLaughlin, he's an old friend of mine from way back and he's been working at The Mill London for quite a number of years now. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. No worries, mate. Just trying to think how long it's been. I don't want to age us too much. <laughs> it's over a decade. We yeah. That. That. yeah. So we studied together in Whanganui. We did our degrees in um, computer graphics, and then you did your master's, I did my post-grad, and then since then, you've, you've been all over the show. Where are you at now, and what are you up to? So, yeah, it's been, it's been a busy few years. Um, I sort of followed my nose, but I've ended up in London. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's quite a Kiwi trait to do that, you know, to, to start somewhere and just keep following your nose. Uh, I started in Wanganui years ago, ended up in Wellington working for a few years. That was awesome and it was great and great for the work experience. And then from there went to Brisbane in Australia, uh, worked there for a few years, got some more experience on some larger projects and then ended up in London. Um, initially sort of traveling uh, just to come over and see the world, but liked it here so much that tried to work out the best way to stay here basically permanently. So there's a few options on that front. You can marry a Brit or you can uh, get sponsored through work if you know what you're doing and, and they like you. So uh, I worked along that front. Managed to get sponsored while I was over here. So I've been over here a number of years now, so I can, I've got permanent residency so I can stay. So, yeah, that was the, the direction. That's amazing. Um, to see where you've gone in, in your career. I really wanted to dive straight into Pure Imagination. You sent me a link to this saying this is the latest piece of work that I've been doing and my jaw dropped. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Cheers, man. G-Monk was the director. When you're working with G-Monk, does he like for you to call him G-Monk or do you call him Bradley? <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny one, that one, isn't it? Uh, so... Uh, so I started working with him a couple of years ago and I, I had the exact same issue. I was like, what am I going to call this guy? This is a bit weird. Um, a lot of these guys have a, an online persona that brands them and keeps them apart and that's that's his one, Bradley G. Monkowitz, G. Monk. Uh, but he he's happy with Monk, Monkey, G. Monk or Bradley um, or B. It depends on uh, how you're feeling, but yeah, he's happy with them all. He's a pretty relaxed guy. He's... Um, He's really driven, but he's absolutely lovely. So, uh, yeah, there was no problems with calling him whatever he, you know, whatever we felt like. I'm going to have the link to this at the bottom of the show notes. So I really encourage everyone to just stop for two minutes, watch it. You'll probably want to watch it a couple of times. Um, and then you can understand what we're talking about as we sort of discuss this piece of work because there's quite a lot in there, isn't there, James? 
Yeah, there's a, there's a fair amount going on. Right from the start, I think the thing instantly the music just puts you into this really special place especially for us slightly maturing people who remember that music quite well from our youth yeah it was um it was a weird one that one we um initially when we were making the the ad the music wasn't chosen so we we spent probably probably a good three or four months working to click tracks and test music and all that sort of stuff uh which helps with pace and all that and then the agency started talking about exactly what track they wanted to use. And that one came up. Um, one of the creative directors came up with it one night. He was just, uh, he must have been watching a film or he, he came across it. And uh, he decided to try it. And they, they put it in the edit. And uh, it, it, it fitted really well. They were quite pleasantly surprised. And initially, some of us were so used to the click track, we, were, we weren't entirely convinced. We felt it was a bit sort of potentially cliche, but what we did was we actually put that ad with, with that music in a fake ad um, commercial break, yeah. just to see how it would sit amongst other ads, and it really hammered it home and worked really well. It really did grow on us. Um, the strange thing was it was probably chosen, I think they, they entered negotiations for buyout rights and stuff for worldwide campaign and then Gene Wilder died uh, and so it it was a bit of a titchy one for a while there because we weren't sure if releasing it with that audio would seem sort of cynical or like we were trying to latch on to you know some sort of current event and try and use it to our advantage but the reality was it was just a bit of bad luck and a bit of bad timing and and so they had to renegotiate a bunch of things but they were so happy with it they really wanted to go with it so yeah so, it happened. so often that happens where just the juxtaposition of some timing and yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah it was it was amazing you know we it was deliberated after the fact, after he passed away, whether or not it was a good idea to go with it. And uh, it went into research groups and it researched well on stage. And so people weren't too worried about um, any of the connotations with it going out. Personally, I thought that it was just really inspiring and um, paid homage to the to the soundtrack. So really, um, I could see why that was. Straight away, I, was, I, was, I watched it a few times as soon as you sent it to me. Um, it's all the little details right from the start is um, the interaction with the UI and the face tracking little, little dots yeah, there, nice and blue. yeah man <laughs> that's really nice the, uh, that was that was G-Monk he, um, he was pretty insistent on that from the start we weren't sure whether or not it was um, a necessary touch you know we kind of felt like we didn't want to cover the guy's face up too much um, but the uh, Bradley was insistent that it was in there because it was important that the computer was or the server was contemplating the outside world and reading what was going on, but a dreaming in a, in a different facet. Yeah. yeah. So it was uh, it was important that it was recognizing us. Before we sort of pull it apart a bit more, just sort of understand how a project like this goes through a large facility and with a high profile director like Gmunk. How does a project like this roll out? Typically speaking, the agency will pitch ideas to the client. So the agency, uh, BBH here in London, they pitched all of their ideas to uh, Audi um, for the for the, a script 
that had some ideas. And then once that script gets approved or rough, a rough idea, they then, they then send that out to directors. So they might have three or four directors that they're thinking about getting involved in a project. They'll send that idea out. And then all of the directors will create a pitch document or a treatment, how they consider their vision could be incorporated with the script. So Bradley uh, wrote a document that was probably, I would say, I think it was between, I think it was about 60 pages long, 64 pages long. Um, and on there, he would have breakdowns for everything. He, he makes these amazing treatments, um, and, and they're probably one of the main reasons he wins so many of the jobs that he approaches. It has everything from visual breakdowns to audio to casting to locations to content, uh, references, stills that he mocks up, all sorts of things. Uh, and so he can, he can make sure that the entire document covers – sorry, mate – all good. Do you want to? No, no, no. <laughs> just carry on, mate. It's it's real live radio. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> that might keep calling if I'm not careful. Um, so the, the the document that he sends out is comprehensive. And so what he does is he starts by sketching up some stuff in there as well. So he'll have some ideas, some test frames of ideas that he's looking at, references that he's found online, uh, images, movies, uh, quick times. You know, he's got a wealth of knowledge in terms of what he likes and what he thinks he can bring to the project. So once he's written that treatment and he's run it through with the agency and they're happy and they choose him, uh, then together they all, they all decide post houses that they could approach about the project. And so they come in and they pitch to a few post houses as well. And uh, we have departments here that can cover pitches, that can cover references, that can help directors with their treatments. And I think that was a strong suit with how we managed to uh, get involved in the project. We were helping Bradley and Bradley was helping us and there was a strong lines of communication nice and early. And so he came in and chatted through what he wanted to do. He showed us the document. We helped him with some more test imagery. I'm going to just turn that off. And we helped uh, get his document through the, uh, through the agency and approved. So then he came and uh, sat with us and uh, we started each scene or frame. We would mock out uh, what we were thinking the commercial would look like at the end, which pieces we would shoot, which pieces we would shoot references, and which pieces we would build up from CG. You'd start with a base CG, you'd rough out where a car could be in a frame um, and you'd use some animation guys to do all that. And you'd also in parallel have some artwork guys or Photoshop guys or Nuke guys putting together some test frames where you might beg, borrow and steal imagery, knowing that you were trying to achieve a look in a single frame. And then that would tell us with Bradley in greater detail what, what the individual layers within a scene would be. So occasionally I'd sit with Bradley and we'd go through those kinds of things. Occasionally it would be other guys in the firm. And then those stills would indicate what each scene would achieve uh, aesthetically. In parallel, the animation guys would get closer and closer with mocking out camera moves and where the car would be or the wolf or the sky or the camera moves for how we were going through a tunnel, how fast we needed to go through a tunnel. How, you know, it would all be quite blocky animation initially, but it would get refined and refined and refined. And then the design process would begin where we would start with uh, mocking up uh, layers in each 
cast to match what we were doing in the stills. So we would know each of the pieces, you know, all the little fine details on the guy's face that you were talking about. That was one layer. There was layers for the tunnel LIDAR. There was layers for a wolf. There was layers for the landscape of the wolf. And it would just build and build and build. And so the process isn't as straightforward as a normal project where you might list exactly what you're going to do to an in-camera shot if you've got some cleanup or something. This was more of a design evolution where we would add stuff in, we would do tests, we would play around with all sorts of things in the suite, lenses and different effects work. And it would build and build and build. And basically that building and that development went on until the end of the piece. So each time you would look at a shot and you would say, how can we improve this? What do you want us to do to this to achieve your vision? If there's something different you want us to try? And it went like that for probably about six months the actual design yeah. process. So yeah, it was a stretch. Um, luckily we run the rooms here, we run project rooms. So all of the guys working on the job, whether they were the 3D artists, the 2D compositors, the effects guys, the animation guys, we were all in one room. So Bradley would come in and he'd be able to have conversations with all of us in one big room. And we would be able to overhear what he was talking to other people about. So the advantage of that was if the effects guys needed a hand with something, I could hear, I'd hear the conversation they were having and it might be something I could give them a hand with in compositing, you know, rather than them tackling it and, mm -hmm. and vice versa. They might hear, you know, a conversation they're having with me about uh, how a tunnel LIDAR would work and, and they could bring, a, bring an approach from 3D effects to solve it from their end. So it's a real collaborative process. Yeah, it was really awesome. It's really great. It's interesting because when I was watching it, especially, I'm, I'm not sure that what you, you would have called that scene, it was the futuristic city where the, the light streaks build the car up on the first pass. That architecture, architecture scene and then car light lines. Yeah. And I was looking at it knowing that you were leading the 2D um, VFX compositing side of it. And I was. it's so hard to know now what is 3D and what is 2D and the blurring of those because it's possible to do everything on one way or the other really now it's, and it's yeah. interesting to know where those different layers and elements have been put together a lot of the guys using Nuke now a lot of the compositors have an understanding of how the 3D guys work and how what, how they can achieve a vision for a compositor but the biggest strong suit is the way the 3D guys understand Nuke as well and they've all got a strong tool set they understand why you render something, how you render it, so that it's malleable down the line, um, so that we don't go down a corridor or a tunnel or a, and not be able to make it flexible. So with car light lines, that was a typical one where we took one steel frame, we painted up a car using light lines in um, Photoshop, then we broke apart that entire Photoshop file and you could see each of the layers. You could see the car light lines. You could see the background. You could see the depth of field. You could see the dust floating in the air. And then each of those elements, we would chat to a 3D effects guy or the animation guy and determine how to make each layer. Mm -hmm. And then each layer would come back and do the loop back to the compositor. And the compositor would put it in. And then we would look at how it moved and how it um, came through. The 3D that we used in this was a little bit different. We did some um, not strict normal layering. Uh, we did some deep compositing. 
Oh, yeah. uh, it's a new kind of approach with Nuke that uh, enabled a lot of flexibility on this project. Basically means that when you're rendering a, um, an image, a single image can have a, a level of depth to it that means some particles and things can be behind others. So you end up um, being able to create depth of field and uh, effects that crops and run through things without having to go back to 3D and ask them to redo it. So it it was uh, it was really flexible and, and yeah easy to work with. Yeah, a lot of the listeners will probably understand traditional compositing and sort of understand Z depth path, but um, with deep compositing, it's more like thinking of the pixels in a voxel space, where then you can yeah. decide where you want to put other elements, literally before or after any of those pixels. So it's mm. it's interesting to see it um, finally come through to full production because it's it's been around for a while. Nice to hear that it's got a place in um, compositing pipelines now. Yeah, it's it's a really strong in these full CG jobs. It's it's a really strong feature, and I think it's something that um, I know it's something we're using here at the mill more and more, um, particularly for um, particle-based simulation work. And rendering depth of field can be quite intensive if you do it in three D, and if uh, you decide you want to change it, it makes it a little more difficult. Yeah. Um, so we we tend to do it through a new. I'm getting phone calls left, right, and centre. Okay, let's take a break, man, if you want to answer it, bro. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. No, mate. All good. <laughs> Go for it. We've got a night crew here, and they're all looking to learn flame and nuke and all that sort of stuff. So they try and grab the machines as quickly as they can. So that's, that's what that was. Yeah, I might keep all this in. It kind of keeps it real. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when I went to um, images, because I was there as their 3D artist and motion designer, and uh, I thought I better start learning this flame that everyone's paying a thousand dollars an hour to use. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, jump on it, mate. Money. Money. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. You know, the guys here are really keen. Um, it's good. You know, it's healthy. Uh, there's 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 still flame's still got a lot of strong points to it, and uh, and Nuke's sort of the new kid on the block. They've, um, they've both developed slightly differently over the last couple of years, but they've both got strong advantages to each of them. So it's it's um, they're really useful. I've, I've learned both and, and I prefer to use each for different different tasks. So, yeah. Right tool for the right job, eh? Yeah, Never changes. Exactly. I learned Nuke, um, well, basically when Apple ate Shake and yeah. put it into yeah. all their um, Final yeah. Cut products. Shake was great. I loved using that and it was my first nodal compositing tool. And then Nuke, it yeah. was just, it was developing so much year to year when when it was first yeah. coming out. It was an internal product that was released from um, ILM, I think. was I think that's where it came uh, from. One of the big studios. Might have been Digital Domain. Might have been, Digital yeah. Domain or ILM. Yeah, I think it was Digital Domain. They, um, yeah, they sold it to the Foundry. Foundry. Yeah. And then... I think there was a strong take-up. At the same time, Fusion was doing pretty well. Um, we were using Fusion over at Prime Focus at the time, um, and it had some really nice tool sets as well. But mm-hmm. it's, it's often driven by the market. You get you get a bunch of firms that take a product, especially if it's a large-scale firm like ILM. You know, if they pick up Nuke and they've got a thousand seats worldwide, it's going it's going to help the product because you've got a user base there who can get involved. Yeah, that's really the case with so many software and applications. I was thinking of um, RenderMan. They showed a worldwide yep. map of all their um, usage and seats. And oh, it was right. like, um, 
you know, Europe and the States was littered all over in the main places you'd see. And then there's this big blank area and then there's like this huge dot over New Zealand. I'm pretty sure that's wetter. Uh, yeah, 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 that'll be better. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to sort of pull back to um, the pure imagination spot. I'm thinking that you work and float with this one for compositing. Yeah, we um, we do all of our work in a in a LUT system. That means uh, basically our colours can go up to two hundred and down to negative numbers. Um, it enables our initially it enabled our grading suites to have a lot more flexibility down the line, but also now with all of these colour systems coming through with uh, full float workflows on um, on the CG side of things as well, it really helps. So we've got a lot of products here that um, specifically for managing how we light cars and light environments. Um, a lot of our on-set supervision makes sure that we're grabbing light in the camera at as many stops as the camera has. So when you're doing a chrome ball on a Macbeth chart, you're making sure that you've got the full spectrum of what's going into the camera because that's what we're matching to. So we work to whatever the camera will give us, the maximum the camera will give us. So if you're looking at an Aria Alexa, you're looking at uh, 14 or 16 stops. So we need to match into that. And, and so that we've got that full gamut here. Are you using ACEs at all? Has that sort of started creeping into workflows? Uh, it hasn't yet. Uh, we have effectively been using a system similar um, that the mill have built uh, that was a few bespoke LUTs that enabled us to work at basically RE uh, wide gamut. Um, which we've been doing for years. There's a very talented man here who's been, uh, Aman's been in charge of how we run our color workflows and stuff for a few years and he's uh, he's geeked out on that and done an awesome job. Awesome. It's interesting time <laughs> I, what I'm hearing from HDRI displays that it's a bigger step than it was when we went from standard def to HD. Is, has that sort of been requested at all for your outputs to have something that could work in an HDRI monitor? It's, it's interesting you say that. For the, first, for the first time I offered up the theory that we should put um, Pure Imagination out as, as available for, for the HDRI monitors. Um, and I haven't seen it on one yet. Uh, we've got them here. I have, it's not a deliverable we've been asked or I've been asked to do yet. Um, but because of our workflows here, the theory is we could retrospectively probably go back a number of years with most of our commercials. Um, and aside from the final online where we convert to Rec. 709 10-bit um, for final deliverable, our timelines would maintain all of that color. So the theory is we could retrospectively probably go to the HDR monitors fairly easily. Yeah, I think it's something that I thought was quite exciting that for a number of years the cameras that have been out in the market were capable of it. So there's a lot of content out there that could could be retrospectively transferred over. Yeah. What was your favourite part of Pure Imagination? There's, there was a bunch of things we were doing that were a lot of fun. It's funny, these projects, uh, it's going to sound weird, but it's always the inspiration you get from the other people that you're working with. The output itself tends to reflect how well the people get along. It's really interesting how that happens. When people start working for a director, you know, you get through the product. 
But when you're working with a director and with other artists and everybody's on a similar playing field, you know, we all get what's going on, um, it really heightens the project. So if you're sat in a room with 20 people that you really get along with and you're enjoying each other's company, it's awesome. I mean, it's, you know, it's six months of being paid to hang out with your mates, which is pretty awesome. Um, And especially when, you know, all of your clients, you feel similar, you know, levels of respect and enjoyment hanging out with these people just making good, fun stuff. So that's that's sort of the, that sounds a bit wanky and, and, you know, like I'm trying to sell the the people I was working with, but it, it really is a case of, being in a room with a bunch of people that you really enjoy working with. At a technical level, the shoot was a hell of a lot of fun. Every now and then we get to go on set and uh, sometimes you end up in cold, miserable, rainy locations because the drama requires that. So you end up in, you know, the hills of Wales and the pouring rain because that's the aesthetic they're after. But every now and then you end up on the north coast of Croatia on a on a beach watching the sunset and you think, you know what, that, yeah, this is this is pretty sweet. It's uh, you work hard to get to these points, but you got to enjoy them when you can. Um, so the shoot was a hell of a lot of fun. And then getting back to the job itself, I mean, there was a few moments where we were using deep compositing and doing some stuff that the tech, the geek side in me, sort of really appreciated what we were able to do in terms of cropping some stuff and moving things around and reprojecting things. Um, there was a hell of a lot of fun with that. And at an optical level, we ended up having a play with um, some kaleidoscopes. We were initially trying some tests to affect the edges of the imagery depending on uh, in certain parts of the piece. We didn't use it in the end, but it was a hell of a lot of fun. We built a kaleidoscope in our suite using three mirrors, big pieces of mirror. And then we all took turns staring down this big piece of mirror through a 5D camera while we held it in front of monitors and and we had like pieces of plastic and stuff in front of it and it was creating all these amazing cool effects and it was quite it was trippy and awesome and that was a lot of fun at a at a creative level it was pretty cool yeah you always did enjoy um getting a lot of hardware and uh fitting it all together yeah i remember your exhibition we give you a bit of stick about having the most amount of monitors (laughs) (laughs) It's, I mean, I love post-production because it's, you're, you're somewhere in the middle between technology and art, you know, you're trying to achieve art, but you've got to, you've got to help the director or the agency understand the technology and how the technology can help them achieve their art. So you're this, you're this medium between, you know, the latest cutting edge tech and an aesthetic that may not have been achieved yet because the tech wasn't invented. So it's, it's pretty good fun when you come across these new pieces, whether it's software or hardware or, you know, just a, um, a, a new technique that's a combination of a bunch of things. Yeah. And it achieves an aesthetic. It's like something new or even something old school, you know, Instagram with its harping back to, you know, the old neg days. You can jump into these things and have a play and, and use them to your advantage. And it, it's a fair amount of fun, you know. I, I like art, but I was never going to be a painter. <laughs> you know, I didn't have the skill sets to be a caricature artist, you know, in London earning my trade somewhere near Big Ben. And I was never going to, I didn't have enough of an understanding to be a, you know, computer science guy. But 
in that spectrum, there's there's a lot to be done if you can have an understanding of, of all of them to a degree. So yeah. knowing a bit of coding is useful, knowing a bit of Python, knowing a bit of computer science, knowing why your computer is doing what it's doing, all the way through to why a camera captures light and how it captures light, to why you know the contrast reduces off in the distance because of atmosphere on a you know smoggy city. It's a nice spectrum to play with during during a, an average working day. You know, nothing's ever the same. Every day is completely different. Working at one of the world's best post-production facilities probably got a bit of a helping hand in that, and that they are sort of exploring new technology all the time. And I was actually wondering whether some of that was used on on this project with um, the Blackbird, knowing how much has been put into that project. So Blackbirds, yeah, Blackbirds, pretty cool. Um, it's uh, predominantly being developed in the States at the moment. Um, the guys just uh, at GDC mentioned some of the stuff we're doing with the Unreal Engine, game engines, so real-time cars. Um, we didn't use it on this project because, A, it was being used at the time in L.A., and, B, because we were lucky in that um, Audi had two prototypes of the brand-new A5. So they had two cars in a giant truck, and the truck driver was also the car driver and the engineer for the A5s. Nobody was allowed, well, I mean, we were now near them, but you weren't allowed to drive them or get in them or touch them because they were working prototypes. So what happened was they were near enough to finish. Um, most of the panels were on the car, the wheels were, the drivetrain was all working, but there was a few things we had to touch up. So. Rather than going from scratch, we were lucky in that Audi had working prototypes that were fairly close. It's just a little bit of augmentation we had to do to make sure that they looked like how they were going to look as a finished product. The, the Blackbird was born of the fact that there was some people who realized there was a gap there because a lot of these cars aren't made in time. You know, you, you can't put a camera near a, a hundred million pound Ferrari. They just won't let you, you know, like classic cars. So yeah, that's why you always see these cars in locked off shots, not driving. Uh, and, and people were saying, well, it'd be great if we could drive one or if we could fully replace it. But without having solid reference, it's always that much harder. So that was where it was born as an idea, but it, it's pretty amazing now, the stuff they're doing with the real uh, Unreal Engine, game engine and doing real time representations of cars so you can frame up and do all that sort of stuff. People who haven't heard of um, this, it's pretty much a chassis with um, wheels that can be positioned to match the footprint of any vehicle um, chosen with multiple high-end cameras recording the car's position for what is basically an HDRI, isn't it, moving around the scene to put back in a CG car in the place of that. Yeah. It was made uh, to be flexible because it, it needed to cover a bunch of cars. So the chassis itself is extendable both lengthways and width. Um, so you can put on wheels, you know, whatever wheels the company wants to put on and tires. And then you can extend the car to fit the same proportions of most cars, pretty much any car. But, the, yeah, the big, the big selling point is the fact that it has a number of cameras and a LiDAR system on top. So it scans the environment, works out where it is relative to positions, and the cameras, yeah, live record what's happening in the entire environment around it. So that enables us to redo 
reflections, shadows, all the, all the light that is captured as a car drives through a scene. It means that it can fully represent what the car is doing. Another big advantage is they deliberately built it electric so that it was programmable. So all of the suspension setup and the engine gear changes and stuff can be programmed to match the car, the real car that it's going to be replacing. So it's a, it's a true representation. For me, Unreal and what um, Unity and it's an emerging world with VR and it's interesting to see those being used in a real application now. I thought mm. it might be quite a few years away, but having um, Unreal visualizing this on set is quite an amazing execution. Have you are you seen a, a real wave and shift towards VR and real time rendering? Uh, predominantly, we started as a post house. When was it? Twenty seven odd years ago, started as a post house. But there's a lot of facets to the business now that are covering all the exactly these kinds of things. The 3D guys at the moment, uh, are, we're rendering as it were, but there's departments that are involved in VR and AR. Uh, so we have crews of people who take care of projects along those lines. So we do, our emerging tech department is covering VR quite strongly at the moment. We're doing quite well. There's a lot of projects coming out that are mill-driven, um, mill-implemented even from Mill Plus down, which is a production company. So, yeah, it, sound, it sounds like I'm selling, <laughs> selling the mill here, but it's, there's, a, there's a lot of facets to it. And the advantage of that is there's a lot of people in different arenas talking to one another, um, sitting down and just chatting about what they're working on. And the overlaps, there are more and more and more overlaps every day. It's like you were saying with 3D and 2D, those lines are very, very blurred now, and it wouldn't surprise me if 2D and AR and VR and Unreal and 3D and animation all just really do start to to merge um, or to at least overlap more and more. I think it, it's like we were saying earlier about Nuke and Flame. You have these tools, and they're very, very good at what they do, and I think the important thing is to keep the, the tools doing what they're best at Yeah, doing that piece of the puzzle it'll be interesting when we when we find it hard to even put labels on these terms like when we think of our smartphones you know we don't call them our mini computers all of this technology is pushing into this area where it'll all blend into one one mix and it'll be hard to label any of it really yeah it's i mean that that's the um that was the joke that Jobs played on when he, when they released the iPhone, wasn't it? He he got up and he stood today. Today I'm going to release a personal computer, a telephone, and a music device. Mm. A personal computer, a telephone, and a music device. And he kept repeating that, and then everybody, the people, clued up and realised that he was talking about one device. Um, and yeah, I definitely think there's merit in um, the overlaps becoming stronger and stronger. I think there's definitely, in terms of artists, there's there's people who are just very well suited to certain roles, and, and it's based on how you grew up and what you experienced and where your interests lie. And I think there will always be people who prefer compositing and people who prefer real-time rendering and people who prefer being an animator. And I think they'll always naturally gravitate towards a role that will suit that need. I think it's really important that the people who are running projects help consolidate all of these people into the right 
pieces of the puzzle and keep the the machine moving forward and enjoying it. Um, I think that's where there's a real skill in the future is being a manager who overlaps all of these disciplines and helps create visions that an artist or or a client might be after that they can't quite put the pieces together themselves. Have you felt that transition a lot in your own career, having moved from being on the tools to actually being a lead and being really invested in the projects more? Uh, I've always, um, from the very start, and you probably remember me at design school, I get get very invested in every project that I get involved with. I've always enjoyed leading projects and enjoyed being one who – sort of uh, socially tries to keep a project together and tries to keep it moving forward. That's always been something that I've really enjoyed. Um, Both of my parents were teachers and I think some of that's rubbed off on me. You know, I enjoy helping younger artists here and stuff, but it's, I think having the drive and being connected to a project, if you're personally invested, um, sometimes you can take it to heart when things don't go well, but I, generally enjoy being really, really involved. It's meant that I have changed. I've nudged my career in slightly different directions because I've seen advantages and disadvantages in doing certain things. So initially at design school, I was predominantly working in print. I sort of assumed I would end up making pamphlets and booklets and books and maybe magazines. And then along came time-based with you guys in Wanganui. We were seeing things like After Effects, and I was looking at that, and I was thinking, well, that's probably the, the future of television, and the online came along, and I was doing CD-ROMs for a little bit, but then I could sort of see that was going to die because of what was happening on the Internet. And then I could see it was getting a little bit frustrating with Internet speed, so I knew I sort of had to wait a while for that to catch up. Nowadays, we're streaming you know, 4K or whatever, and everything's fine. But just picking a path to ensure that I was future-proofed, I made sure that I was sort of moving into areas that kept me moving forward. So from After Effects, I went into a bit of compositing, compositing into Flame, Combustion, uh, and then Nuke. And Yeah, it, I, I try to keep my hand in everything. I probably used After Effects for the longest, actually. Yeah, I'm still using yeah, it every day. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it, it is awesome, and it's been awesome for, you know, whatever, 20 years. I think it's really important to keep looking and keep searching. It's it's good to be solid in the current position you're in and be invested, but always keep an eye out for where you think your interests might lie or where, you're, where you think the industry might be headed or where you want to head within the industry looking to the future of what's emerging if if you want to know what's going to happen in the future just look at what's coming out SIGGRAPH it's, it's pretty, there's a lot yeah. of telltales there but also yeah. I have found being in an um, agency that I could see that there was some tech that was really going to change the game and one of those was the red camera making um you know high quality footage available on much smaller budget it was interesting, I really worked out that whole workflow studying from FXPHD with what those guys were doing with one of the first red ones out there. With the audience, I'd really say um, you have to promote that knowledge as well. If you, if you can have all this knowledge, but if others who are in a position to make those projects happen aren't aware of it, then it's going to go to waste because I think 
in that stage of my career, I needed to speak up and say, hey, if we get these projects shot in red ones by these emerging directors, we can like create something a lot more beautiful with a lot less work. So be vocal yeah. about your knowledge as well. Yeah, it's, there's people in the industry who, who are very progressive and are prepared to share a lot of ideas. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's a lot of people who protect their own ideas because they feel like if they don't protect it, they'll lose their advantage. One massive advantage of being at the mill is that it's very open. They, that you come in here and that nothing's hidden. You walk around and you, and you just chat with people about what they're up to and how they're working. And when they have multiple clients in the building and the clients will be talking to other clients and we'll be showing them tech. We have nights here where we have people in and they sit down. We have clients come in and do presentations, agencies, production houses. They come and show their work to us. They show it to other people. And that wealth of knowledge, the only way we'll move forward as a, as a, as a society is to share that knowledge, uh, I feel. If you're hanging on to it, it's probably because you feel like you're not really keeping up. If, you, if you're sharing all of this knowledge, um, other people will share with you too. And, that, and that's where the fun is, you know, learning the new stuff. I've always thought of you as a very confident person. But I also know that there's a lot of people who migrate to this field who are very introverted and very um, conservative, who I, I just encourage you to push yourself because a large part of this role is about relationships and communication. Yeah, it's, mate, it's a massive facade. Confidence is something that you can just project. You don't actually <laughs> have to have it. Internally, I'm you know, constantly having this conversation with you thinking, oh, Jesus, I rambled on there. I should have stopped that one early. I could have talked about this. I could have... I think we've all got those voices in our head that tell us we're not doing the right thing. Yeah. It, it's really important to put yourself out there. One rule I gave myself when I moved to London, when I initially moved here, I had no friends here. Uh, I had one mate who was over here. But uh, I decided to live by the rule that if somebody asked me to do something like go out or meet to play football or what have you, I would just say yes. And I did that for a year and it helped me no end. Getting out there and meeting people is just, it's like any experience. The more you do something, the, the easier it becomes because it, it just becomes the norm. Um, and I think that's, that's confidence is like that as well. If you're prepared to just walk into a room and chat to people, start by walking into a room with two people into it. By the, by the end, you walk into a room with 50 people in it and you're prepared to chat to them. It's... Confidence, yeah, it's funny. I think most with most people, it's a massive facade, and uh, <laughs> we're all deep down. We're all very, very worried that we're not, you know, achieving what we should or being the kind of person that we want to be. But it's uh, it's just something that comes with time. I think it, as we all get older, we get more confident, typically. And I think that's just something that you've just got to work on and, and do it a little bit at a time. Was I perceived as being confident? It's a fine line, isn't it, between confidence and arrogance? And <laughs> no. sometimes I've danced over that one a few too many times. No, you're a good mate. So it was, <laughs> I never perceived you as arrogant. So I, I, I don't want to say anything negative. You've got way too many stories on me. <laughs> and pictures old cameras though it's quite funny we've got a series of uh, photo albums which I feel for the kids these days it's, it's got to be harder you know if you go out to a party and you have a few drinks and there ends up being photos on Facebook 
it can, it could dent your confidence. Um, whereas, you know, we're from a time where all the photos were taken on film and then put in an album. And that album can be put away and hidden in a wardrobe and nobody ever has to see it again. You know, my poor choices of the clothes I was wearing at the time, nobody needs to know about that. It'll never get seen. But a lot of kids these days, they have to put themselves out there because it's just the world we live in. Yeah, I was um, chatting with Andrew Gibbons a couple of weeks ago. He's um, made the decision of not having his child on social media. So any photos, he'll white out and blur. I've done the same. So I've got two kids. Uh, I've deliberately kept them off social media. Mostly, uh, there's a few reasons for it. Um, I want it to be their choice. You know, there's my parents have a bunch of photos of me when I was a kid and you know, various states of undress, running around backyards, you know, barbecues and stuff. And I think that if they were online now, it might change people's perceptions of me. For better or for worse, it just would change their opinion. And I'd prefer people to judge me on meeting me. So Mm -hmm. I think that's why I feel like I've kept my kids off social media. If they want to choose to go on, I have no issue with that. Um, But I'll leave it up to them. Uh, it's nice to put them on social media so that the grandparents can see them. But to be honest, I can do that with a with a quick email. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm very similar. I don't um, put photos of the youngest child up, but um, the, well, now that the older boys, my stepsons, are getting a bit more mature, it's, yeah. um, it's it's a bit of a laugh because they can always um, tell me to take it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think. I think it, Leave it up to them, you know. Yeah. That, that's that's the cool thing is they get to they get to choose, you know. It, parenting's a it's a minefield, but um, we all like to think we're going to do it well, and and we just need to be careful and let the kids, you know, gain confidence through their own experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So I was trying to remember because before tech, we went to the same high school, which is quite weird as well. Yeah, years and years. Many years ago. I remembered you prior to high school, and it must have been intermediate. And then, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Then, then you left and then came back. So actually, all the people in the industry, you're the person I know the longest. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're the person I literally know the longest, probably aside from family, obviously, who I still chat to. Yeah. I, I, I had some friends... Uh, in intermediate who I'm you know you, you hook up on Facebook but you don't really chat whereas you and I uh, have stayed in contact so yeah you're probably my oldest friend as it were yeah big ups to us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's been awesome to chat thanks so much mate for like making the time to meet and talk I know that you've had a long day and you've always got huge projects on so thank you for your time oh no worries no worries I'm really keen to do this again. I think there's heaps that we can catch up on. So um, we'll, we'll keep in touch and see when the next project launches and we can um, do another episode, mate. Yeah, man. All right. Awesome. Bro, totally forgot to ask you the picks of the week. <laughs> and now it's time for the Pro Video Picks. <laughs> Did you get anything uh, for that? So uh, I don't know. I'm going through a phase of really loving like 3D printed animations uh, cycles and stuff like that. So I'm really enjoying all those sorts of things at the moment. We, we occasionally we get projects in here that do it, 
But there's a guy at the moment who's creating um, business cards that loop when you spin them on a um, – this sounds really weird – spin them on a record player. A guy named uh, Drew Tetz. And he does these business cards that you pop on a record player and you spin them. And the animation times with the sync of the uh, of the record player, which is pretty cool. But I'm I'm quite um, I'm quite ADD. You know, I flick between things constantly. It's really hard to pin down any one thing. But yeah. at the moment, I'm enjoying enjoying stroboscopic sort of effects. That's awesome. We'll get a link to that and I'll check that out. Who do you like to follow online? I. I tend to collect people on Behance, basically. I hit Behance and just go through the portfolios. Yeah. There's so much great stuff on there. Um, so it just grows and grows and grows, basically. Uh, I hit there most days. Um, and the flip side at the tech level is Gizmodo, you know, uh, going and seeing what's on there and what, what's happening in terms of really interesting uh, mechanical tech is, is right up there for me. So it's... It's those places. Um, but it, it's a folly you nose kind of thing for me. References come in, people need references, I go and find them. Speaking of reference, is there a particular video um, or film that you can think of sharing with the audience that has inspired you a lot? It's been a long time since I spent any time at the Flex uh, having small children. I don't know, I really loved Interstellar. I really loved Interstellar. I loved the storytelling, I loved the visuals, I loved the way that it played out. It was quite amazing. Um, Felt like they'd really nailed a whole bunch of things in terms of explaining space-time. Weirdly enough, at the same time, I was reading um, A Brief History of Time, Stephen Hawkins, and it it was really interesting because the two I watched the film halfway through the book, reading the book, and it was really interesting because the film was achieving being able to explain what was going on in the book because I was having to reread <laughs> sentences over and over and over again. And I, and then I saw the film and it helped me read the book, which was really kind of weird. It was really yeah. quite amazing explaining time and space and black holes and yeah. So it's yeah. really weird. I've got this theory where I. Um, when I read books, uh, the next book I read will be referenced in the last book I read. So whether it mentions an author, mentions a time, a place, what have you, I try and follow my nose on that front. And that's been quite interesting exercise, actually, because it meant instead of reading, you know, 10 books by one author, I followed my nose and ended up in these strange places <laughs> reading books about all sorts of odd times and uh, you've you've yeah, literally was, taken pick a path to a whole new level. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's quite funny. I have to write in the front cover of the current book I'm reading where other books are mentioned within it. So, um, yeah, it's quite fun, actually. It's, it's kind of nice. Um, you never know where you're going to go next. Nice. Okay, finally, where can we find you online, mate? Uh, I'm online in a few places. LinkedIn, James McLaughlin. I'm on Vimeo, James Mack. Um, and I'll go at jamesmclaughlin.co.uk Awesome, thank you again um, we'll, I'll say thanks for joining us on the show once more <laughs> <laughs> You can find me and the show at Pro Video Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter You can also find me at Blair Walker on Twitter also Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week Cheers guys, bye I'd like to say thank you to worldpodcast.com who are proudly presenting this episode and recommend that you check out their website for all the other great shows that they have. I personally have really enjoyed the latest episodes of Stupid Questions for Scientists 
I found it a hilarious discussion between scientists and comedians. Another great show, the Social Media Strategy Podcast. Social media is such an important part of day-to-day business. Really recommend you checking out that show as well. I hope that you've enjoyed the show. Please take a moment to go to iTunes, leave a comment, leave a review, and rate the show. It helps so much for others to be able to find the show as well. If you could do that, I'd be really grateful. So thank you. Again, thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.